Today, I'm again speaking with Brian Kaplan. Brian is a professor of economics at George Mason University and the author of a number of books. Agree or disagree with him, Brian is someone who will always give you the benefit of his candid opinions. Uh, so thanks for coming back on the podcast, Brian. <laughs> Delighted to be here, Rob. Two angles on why you shouldn't read the news. So one is, what is the actual effect of following the news on the life of the individual that's doing it? And I think it's just hard to imagine that it's not just what you're saying. You just imagine doing a time diary approach where you are talking about and rec- what you're doing and what your mood is at every minute of the day. Obviously, when people are watching the news, normally stuff on the news is quite horrifying and they're getting upset and agitated. If you just think about people that are angry about things every day, normally they don't have enough stuff going on in their, in their personal lives to actually get that angry. And so what they are angry about is stuff that they are hearing about on the news. So that, what I would just say, is the main selfish case. And then to say, well, but what if I fail to learn something that's really important for me personally? It's like, yeah, well, what are the odds of that? That hardly ever happens. And especially if it were going to be that important, you would hear about it almost certainly in a number of other ways. And therefore, it wouldn't matter. I remember, actually, my family was driving down from D.C. to Florida on the very day that the George Floyd riots were hitting the country. If we were totally, you know, so I had heard something about it from Facebook, but if we were just totally not following the news, even so, since I was going to be visiting some friends, I would have gotten emails from them. I did get emails from them saying, don't come to Charleston, South Carolina. It's a war zone here. Uh, And therefore, it would have been fine. (laughs) Uh, So it really just uh, very rarely happens that not following the news would actually wind up having any harm to you personally because you were uninformed. There are the psychological gains from not having the negativity because, as we know, news veers very negative. Now, in terms of how can you become an informed and enlightened person, that's the other perspective. And this is one where my first reaction is, well, read it in history books. If it's that important, it'll be in history books. Read that. Uh, when I do want to get up to date with something that's been going on, I find it's very helpful just to read Wikipedia. It's a lot less emotionally affecting because they're aggregating a whole lot of information. It's not this sense of, oh, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, good. Oh, no. Uh, so in that way, you wind up getting not only a l- less of an emotional roller coaster, but you also get a better picture of what's really going on when you read the Wikipedia article on an event because there's filtration, there's curation, stuff that turns out to be not actually true and important generally doesn't appear on the Wikipedia article. And in that way, you can still be highly informed. For example, you know, with all due modesty, I'll say I think I'm at 99.9% on Israel and Palestine, for Americans anyway. You say, well, for an American. <laughs> but still, I think that's way beyond what most people follow the news is, but that's because I've just read a number of books on it as well as some really good graphic novels, honestly, some great graphic novels on this topic. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, But in terms of knowing what's going on, I think I'm really quite good. But without that sense of dread and horror and outrage that people who are watching the news minute to minute actually experience. Rob's experience with quitting the news. After hearing the arguments Rolf makes in that book, my wife and I decided to stop reading the news basically cold turkey uh, Christmas last year mm-hmm. uh, because we thought it was kind of making us sad and anxious without actually doing that much to help us make the world a better place or even understand the world. I'm kind of naturally uh, a news donkey, and I think 
before that, I was spending maybe one to three hours reading the news on average a day. Um, and that's probably about what I've been doing for most of my adult life. Since then, I guess we've, we've mostly stuck uh, to it. And I, I'd say my news consumption is down about 90%. Uh-huh. Some stuff still gets through in the comedy we watch. Uh, I listen to like a Spanish uh, <laughs> Spanish language learning program, which has news in it sometimes, and people bring it up in conversation in person, which is which is fine. Uh, I guess I have also, you know, sometimes for preparing for the show, I, I check out specific uh, news things that I'm actively looking for, more, more more technical stuff, and I don't try to avoid that. But basically, I haven't checked the homepage of the Financial Times, or the New York Times, or the Atlantic, or the New Yorker, or the BBC, or the newsfeed on Twitter, or the newsfeed on Reddit, or anything like that for about for about ten months. It's it's all been blocked and. And I really do think I'm, I'm happier and more productive than I used to be. Uh, certainly, I'm not as anxious and my moods are not as volatile as they were before. I was spending 10% of my waking life reading the news. That is a lot of time. It really, it's not enough to say that there is some benefit to that. You really want to say this is providing 10% of the value in your life. <laughs> it has to be actually providing a significant amount of, of goodness. And it just is so unclear that it's doing that. It's, it's unclear whether it's positive or negative, uh, let alone providing 10% of, of my well-being. Now, I think that as a result of reading less news, I do read more books uh, and, I ha- and I do listen to more lecture series. There's a this company, The Great Courses, which produces fantastic lecture series. Uh, and I've just been just been churning through them this year. But I would say about half of the time that we've freed up, I just play computer games with my wife. <laughs> But I honestly think that is a much better use of time <laughs> because it's good. Well, firstly, it's just fun. So I come away from playing computer games with my wife feeling refreshed. I'm like excited and happy. I've had a good time rather than feeling actively worse, rather than feeling drained because I was reading about something horrible. And it's good for our relationship. And it's just inherently enjoyable during the time. Isn't it important for good citizens to follow what's going on? First of all, of course, there's the general effective altruism point of unless you think that this is the most important problem in the universe, you should be directing your all of your altruistic energy towards the number one cause. So this is probably not the number one most important cause in the universe. So take that time you're spending reading on the news and put it into whatever is the number one most important problem, whether it's deworming or bed nets or whatever you have. Let's see. But another key point is, like I said, even you could believe that and still recognize that you could cut down by 90% without any loss in your ability to perform that function. And I would say you could go and cut down way more and just go and read the Wikipedia article instead, which I think, you know, so like the political bias in Wikipedia is quite a bit lower. The getting the big picture is, is a lot better. So, you know, I would just say you could do that instead, and then you are performing this duty in a much more effective way. This is where you can tell the people that only read the daily stories, well, actually, remember there was a story that got a lot of coverage, turned out to be wrong. And therefore, rather than it's helping us to go and hold the government to account, it is scapegoating people for something that didn't even really happen in the way that people imagine. And so, yes, it's not, not in fact, a big deal. I mean, other things to think about are, certainly if you're just using it for voting, you can say, what are the odds that the news stories will be sufficiently severe that would even change your vote? Right. So there's that. Uh, and then in terms of the the story, well, like, even if I agree, even if the people that I like are in power, I still want to be able to be monitoring them and making sure they're doing good things. And this is where, again, on the one hand, uh, there's something to the argument, but you know, what about the point of there's a base rate of, of honest, just standard human error below which you ought, ought to actually be worrying that they're just not trying hard enough. There's the old joke in economics about how if you've never missed a plane, you spend too much time hanging around in airports. Similarly, if you were to say that I'm going to get really angry over every mistake the politicians make, it's like, well, isn't there just some base rate of mistakes that they will make if they're doing a good job? And if you only punish 
the uh, you know, the kinds of mistakes that covered in the media? Aren't you going and actually giving them incentive to go and do the kind of things that uh, to ba- basically make the mistakes that come from avoiding risk? From avoiding acting and just being uh, as conservative as possible to not be associated with any actions, even if they had positive expected value, because they're because then you'll be blamed if they go badly. Yeah, right. Or especially when you realize that some actions are not counted as actions by the media. So failing to repeal doesn't count as an action. And then, you know, this is this is a you know general problem with any kind of deregulation repeal. If after it happens, any bad thing occurs that would have been prevented, or at least even you know, imaginably prevented by keeping the regulation on the books. This is seen as the hard proof that the regulation should never have been repealed, even though cost-benefit analysis might say, look, it's better to go and cut the price of housing by 20% and have three more buildings collapse for earthquakes per year. Like another nice illustration of this is whenever there is a disaster, the normal reaction is something has to be done to stop this from ever happening again. Again, the question is, well, maybe we should just stay the course because this is the right number of disasters to have, which horrifies people. But it's like, look, like we shouldn't have earthquake codes so strict that no building ever collapses no matter what. Yeah. Right? Because the effect on housing costs would be astronomical. Right? So why don't you tell me what is the correct number of houses to collapse in earthquakes? And then we're only going to cover it in the media if we exceed that number. Like you just imagine the head, people's heads exploding. Like, no, we have to cover every <laughs> single one so that we can have the proper reaction. Look, this proper reaction is what makes housing costs too high. But what if I mostly read good news? And what if I miss the frenetic energy? So maybe maybe the first uh, rebuttal that I could imagine someone saying is, you know, I mostly read good news, like uh, you know, weekly a weekly summary of the world events in The Economist or mm-hmm. checking out, you know, I'm reading long essays in The New Yorker or long big idea pieces in The Financial Times. And, you know, I'm not I'm not that interested in random grabbing shocking headlines. Is, is that really so wrong? Maybe this is a net benefit. I mean, that, that doesn't sound crazy. I mean, I would just say if someone were to say you're basically right, but I can cut down 90 percent, I can still be almost as well informed while reducing the harm. I think that's a really obvious position, and it's. I think that one's almost impossible to argue against. At least to say, what if you want to spend half as much time in the news? Would you really be noticeably less informed? No, but would you be less unhappy? At least in the time diary sense, where you are counting the experiences of the day, then I don't see how you could fail to be more happy as a result of cutting down 50%, with really virtually no change in the level of knowledge that you have even about the events themselves. Okay, so uh, a third stream of defense that I hear is that, and, and maybe this is the one that I'm, I'm, I'm most sympathetic to, or, or this is the, the one thing that I feel maybe I've lost from not reading the news is this kind of frenetic energy that you get from engaging with live events that on the one hand, it's kind of anxiety and it's kind of feeling bad. It's kind of feeling overwhelmed by events, but there's also this kind of enthusiasm energy, uncertainty. It's like watching a sports match in real time. And you're like, well, this is kind of bad because I'm worried that things will go badly. But also I'm like, I'm so engaged, right? I'm so, I'm, 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 this is really activating me. I think on balance, I don't really want to have more of that in my life. I value the calm, uh, but I do, I do slightly miss that at times. I guess there was times when that was, when that was fun. I mean, I think that's the secret to the business model. It can't be that people are made happy by it. So it's got to be (laughs) that you're tapping into some other emotion that is at least partly positive you know so you like it's anxiety but yeah it's the frenetic anxiety it's being part of something it's flow uh, so yeah like definitely there's a lot of flow from news but with moderate efforts i think you can find some much better substitutes for it 
I mean, really, a much better substitute for the news is just friendship. Yeah. Just having people that you that you would like spending time with. This is the main secret of human happiness. People are primarily happy when they're spending time with people whose company they enjoy. You, know, you might compare the news to spending time with like your cousin that you hate. <laughs> but you've known each other and you sit there pushing each other, uh, pushing each other's buttons. Like, wouldn't you rather be with a relative that you have positive flow with than this negative flow? It's like, yeah, well, it's too hard to find that. But it's like, well, if you don't, if you don't recognize what you're really looking for, you're really not likely to find it. Terrorism and the news. Okay, so here's a controversial point that uh, Rolf makes in, in, in the book, maybe to, to, to begin to close out this section. And that is that reading the news and journalism and the media in general are the direct cause of terrorism. The notion there being that terrorists commit terrorism in large part to get massive media coverage. So when the media provides massive media coverage to terrorist attacks and we choose to read about it, that motivates further terrorism. What do you think of that argument? I think it's got to be at least 70% true. I mean, I don't think, you know, so if you were to just get rid of news entirely, there'd still be some terrorism, you know, and they're hoping to spread it through word of mouth or whatever. But yeah, like, obviously, they're highly motivated by the social dynamics. It's hard to see how you can doubt it. I mean, if you were just go back historically, if they were to say, like, were there things that we would classify today as terrorism before there was any mass media? It's like, there's a few things that you might go and count, but I mean, really, that's sort of... It's anachronistic because in the past, when there's a pogrom and they aren't doing it for the purposes of getting reaction, they're doing it just to kill a bunch of people that they're mad about in, in that area. I mean, you might say pogroms have have a motivation of we go and we massacre a couple towns, and this will lead to mass flight from the country from all the other people that are worried about it, and that's terrorist in a sense. But this is actually. One of several examples of things where if you know the broad span of human history, mass media seems to have changed the way that bad things happen. You know, closely related to terrorism is if you look at the way that the motivations and the dynamics and, the, and just the way that wars played out in the past, normally the ways that wars used to work is there'd be two countries, one would attack another, one side would be decisively defeated, and then they would then there'd be a peace treaty where they would go and permanently quote-unquote, hand over some land to the other side. That's the way that it worked. And in those days, you could very plausibly see, okay, they're fighting because this side wants the city of Cologne with its salt mines or whatever. Right now, if you look at the modern world, there are a lot of wars where really the whole point of it is just to antagonize people. There's no actual goal. There's no resource anyone wants. There's no plausible risk. And furthermore, there's no actual resolution the normal result of a war in the modern period is what was called a frozen conflict zone, where no peace, no war, we have a ceasefire, and that's the end of it. Until, of course, war fighting breaks out again. So if you just look at, prior to Ukraine, all of Russian military interventions, they basically go and, they, and they, there's some incident, and they grab a little piece of territory, and they basically just give the middle finger to the rest of the world. And then there's a ceasefire and that's it. It's just not the kind of war that used to be fought. You know, like there's very little strategic, military, economic point to the territory that seized. It's more of just showboating for the media and saying, look, there were some ethnic Russians there. You can't push this around. Ha. 
An important question here, if we're, if we're trying to just take this from a very pragmatic point of view, is if the media just had a blanket ban on reporting of terrorism, in the long run, how much would we expect terrorism to decline? And I guess you, you were saying something like 70%. That seems about, that seems kind of kind of reasonable to me. Yeah. Presumably you wouldn't be able to go and ban people from emailing things. There'd be viral emails. Exactly. I believe there'd be a lot of substitution where it's like the terrorism the media doesn't want you to know about. So there'd be kooks within with internet lists and you'd have to have a real police state to go and totally crack down on it. Brian's overall take on AI risk. So like the number of times I've been told by people, oh my God, the AI is so fantastically good. And then I look at it and it's just like, it doesn't seem to work at all. What are you talking about? You know, or people go and say like, it's gotten so good at chess. And like, yeah, well, that's just what I would expect that it would be good at. And who cares? Chess isn't important. It's like, no, no, now it can do Go. Like, it goes an even dumber game than chess. I can't imagine. <laughs> okay. And I have actually told friends, look, when it's good at Dungeons and Dragons, let me know. That's a real game. Yeah. That's a game that I actually care about that really is, an es- is essential to being a human being. So that was my view for a long time because people just made claims that seemed unlikely to be true. And I checked them out and they were false. And I said, all right, well. And then when GBT3 came along, once again, people started saying, this is fantastic. And I said, all right, let's go and see what happens if I go and give my, I think it was my labor economics midterm to GBT3, and it got a D, right? And then the reaction from some fans is, to get a D on that exam is an incredible achievement. I'm like, do you realize how low my standards are? <laughs> no, he's not an incredible achievement. It's it's basically what you get for just sort of mentioning some key terms and like rambling on a bit about the question. So that was where I said, okay, so this is basically vaporware number 173. But then GBD4 came out and I gave it the same exams and it did great. It got A's. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> all right. And this is in the course of three months. So over the course of three months, it goes from a D to an A. And I remember when I was arguing with my friends, I, I, I was even saying, so you're saying the next version is going to be able, is going to do a lot better on the test. Tyler Countess said, your tests don't count for anything anyway. Who cares about your stupid tests? And I care about my stupid tests. My, <laughs> to, my, to my mind, these tests show whether people are really thinking about the subject, whether they understand it on a deep level, whether they can take what I have taught them and apply it in ways that are not just rote memorization. And of course, since I've been giving these tests for 25 years, I feel like I've got a really good sense of what level of thought and depth it goes behind certain levels of answers versus others. And of course, and I just feel like I understand this metric much better than I understand most other metrics. Furthermore, I consider it to be a lot more uh, more impressive than being able to do well in an SAT where I'll say, look, they've got hundreds of SATs that they can train off of. It's not that surprising that you can get a machine to go and do well on a test that it has all this training data on. But on the other hand, my tests are either not in the training data, or at least there's not just not that much of it. So if a machine can do well on it, then that would really say something. It's saying that it's actually got some kind of general performance capability. And, and anyway, so went and gave it a test three months later with GB4, and it got an A. And I, I will say my jaw did drop. I had a bet on it. The bet doesn't mature until 2030, and, it, and it's a higher bar than just getting an A once. So I still feel like maybe I'll win just by virtue of bad luck for the, for the AI. But I will say that the guy that bet me, in terms of the substance, I think that it shows that he in particular was right. So anyway, that's where it really changed my mind about uh, the ability to go and perform well on tasks of this kind, which do mean a lot to me. I mean, I do actually consider the ability to go and learn material to the, uh, to the degree where you can get an A on one of my tasks. That is something where... 
I'm not going to say it's what separates humans from the animals, but on some <laughs> level, and, you know, it's what separates someone that I want to have lunch with with someone that I don't want to have lunch with, whether they are capable of learning this material in the, uh, to the degree where they can get an A on one of my tests. You know, it's not like I don't want to talk to you if you haven't taken the class with me, but if you couldn't, I went to, after taking the class, go and do well on the test, then it's like, ah, yeah, I mean, you're just, there's something about you that's not, you know, not, that not isn't engaging to me anyway. So I mean, I did change my mind about the performance there, but this is where, you know, like, where this all comes back to me is base rates. Now, Scott Alexander has this phrase of base rate ping pong, where he says, look, anytime someone makes a base rate argument, you can always make a different base rate argument. And then base rates really don't, aren't, aren't meaningful. So I say base rate for people saying something is going to be the end of humanity. And then how often have they been right? And like, they've never been right. Just, but I could have the base rate of a new weaponizable technology gets released. And, and then we do the average of how many time, of how many people would kill. And it's like, okay, then that winds up being high. All right, so it is true that you can go and do this, and this really actually is almost directly out of Hume's problem of induction. Yeah. Not quite the same, but still it is very much in the same ballpark of, for any observation, what is the correct generalization to draw? Now, it is hard for almost any rationalist to really stick with this base rate ping pong nihilism, because it is a nihilistic view, because remember... One of the main lessons out of books like Super Forecasting is that an essential skill for good forecasting is thinking in terms of base rates. So just to go and say, like, no, 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 you can't trick me with this base rate trick. Base rates, we can just do ping pong all day, and there's no such thing as a right base rate or even a better, worse base rate. It's like, if you're going to say that, then like the whole rationalist product project crumbles. It is very close to just saying we can't learn anything from experience per the original Hume's problem of induction. And yeah, if you don't think you can learn anything from experience, there's no EA project, of course. Like, what? Like, there's no existing other than Hume saying, "Well, I just kind of pretend that I don't know this stuff and have a beer with my friends and try to get through it the next day." Yeah. So that's where I would I would say if we're not willing to go and think in terms of base rates, then we can barely converse anymore. If we're going to say that there's just no such thing as a more or less reasonable base rate, rational irrationality on the part of voters. Imagine that you go to the grocery store and you just start throwing objects in at random and buy them. All right, what happens? Well, you waste a pile of your own money on a bunch of stuff you don't actually want, right? Or imagine even more strongly, what if you just go in there and you just buy a bunch of stuff that you're supposed to want? So you go just go and put in a whole bunch of rice cakes or whatever, <laughs> whatever stuff is allegedly super healthy, and then you buy it. And what's happened? Yeah, you just have a bunch of stuff that you don't even want to eat because it sounds good, but in fact, it's disgusting and you can't stand it, All right? And, yet, and when you make decisions on, on this basis, you are the one that suffers. It is your money that is wasted, which doesn't mean that no one will ever do it. We've all pur made purchases that afterwards were like, man, that was kind of dumb. Why did I buy that thing? And yet it is quite abnormal for you to go fill your cart with a bunch of total junk that you don't even want and then get home and say, why did this happen to me? On the other hand, if you go and vote randomly, or go and vote for a bunch of stuff that just sounds good, even though it doesn't work very well in practice, what happens to you? And the answer is the same thing that would have happened to you if you were the most diligent, thoughtful voter in the world and voted on that basis. Because you're just one person. You're just one person out of millions or tens of millions or even 100 million voters. So effectively, you have no influence on the outcome, which means that you really can safely go and vote randomly 
or you could very safely go and vote for what sounds good rather than what actually works well. All right. Now, many people say, well, why would I vote randomly? Yeah, probably it's going to be more of you'll vote emotionally. You'll vote based upon what sounds good. You'll vote based upon ideology. Uh, if you were to go and say, I'm going to go and figure out what job to do based on philosophy, it's like, yeah, your philosophy is not going to be very helpful for figuring out these questions. Uh, but if you're going, going to go and vote based on a philosophy, that's actually quite normal right? Uh, for people to go and, and do it in that way. Uh, now, I'm actually, we're in the middle of a new book where I think that I really am taking the argument from the myth of the rational voter. I'm giving it a lot more psychological structure, and I think that I'm really happy with, with how it's coming out. And this is where I build very heavily on the idea of social desirability bias. Uh, it's basically very simple. It's a common sense idea with a fancy name. It just says, when the truth is ugly, people lie. And when the lies become ubiquitous enough, people often just even forget that they're lying. They lose consciousness of it because no one's ever even challenging them. And I say this is really the general theory of democracy is that what rules policy is just what sounds good, not what is good. Because everyone or like virtually everyone really is voting based purely upon the most superficial appearances. And even curiosity about what's, what the real effects of policies are is so low. Like another one, this one is great for EAs. Right. Almost every country, I think really every rich country, spends considerably more on universal redistribution than on means-tested redistribution. Hmm. From an EA perspective, this is just insanity. Right? Just imagine what EAs would say about a billionaire who says, I have $8 billion to give away. Here's my plan. One dollar to each person on Earth. <laughs> and it's like, all right, there are worse things you could do, like you give $8 billion to a terrorist group or something. <laughs> but it's about as dumb of a helpful thing as you could do. It's like, target your resources to where they do the most good. And yet, almost every, every first world government anyway, they spend a lot more on universal redistribution, where look, the intellectual case is pretty simple. It comes down to why take money from everyone to give to everyone. Why not instead focus on the biggest problems and just say most people just don't need help and can take care of themselves? And then the, the, the defenses of this, even social scientists are so pathetic. <laughs> it's pathetic just in the sense of they hardly even exist. If you just go to Google Scholar and try to find all the defenses of the way that, got, that first world government spend trillions of dollars every year, you've got like 20 articles. Like, and that's it. It's like 20 articles to justify spending trillions of dollars every year. Like, you know, like, and what are the defenses? Well, there's one of the only way to redistribute is to do it universally because otherwise people are vote too selfishly and you have to basically trick them into thinking that they're benefiting, even though, of course, on net they are not, which is an awfully specific theory of human error. 